0: Welcome to the second episode of Tax Break, a podcast about the tax law brought to you by Miller and Chevalier. Before we begin, we have a confession to make to our listeners. Our first episode, which we hope you've listened to already because it features our colleague Jorge Castro and discusses some of the CARES Act business relief provisions, was actually the second episode that we recorded.
1: Well, if we're getting technical, it was really our third episode because our first attempt ran long. We're trying to keep these down around 20 to 30 minutes, and we decided to divide it in two. So you're about to listen to episode two, but as you'll hear, we introduce it as our first episode. We recorded it before the lockdown, so you'll have to forgive us. In any event, here's our second episode. We discuss the December 2019 BEAT regulations. Welcome to the first episode of Tax Break, a new podcast on the tax law brought to you by Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon. I'm a tax lawyer at Miller & Chevalier. I do tax litigation, and I'm joined by my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. The idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspectives on select tax issues that we think are interesting. We want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so you can follow along without a copy of the regs in front of you. As always, first, a disclaimer. Tax Break is not intended to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its content reflects only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts or guests. So, for our first podcast, we wanted to kick things off with a semi timely topic, uh, which is the release of the final and proposed regulations under Section 59A, the BEAT, from December of last year. And true to our commitment on tax break, we're not going to stuff you with detail about either set of regulations. Instead, we wanted to select a couple of the issues that we thought were interesting in the regs and discuss those. So, for today, the first issue involves determining whether or not there's a base erosion payment for BEAT purposes. The final regs effectively punt on that question, deferring to general tax principles and general legal principles as a way to decide whether or not there's actually a payment. We're going to discuss the upshot of that regulatory choice. The second issue we'll talk about involves how the proposed regs deal with the waiver of deductions in the BEAT context, which, in, for my dollar, raises some interesting questions about how about some tax issues that are, for lack of a better term, foundational. So let's start, and Lauren, I, I want you to kick it off if you can, and let's talk about uh, the general tax principles issue, and, and how did that bubble up sure. um, in, in the BEAT context?
0: Yes, this is going to be a good discussion, I think. So if we look back to, uh, let's say, January 2018, right after the beat was enacted, um, a lot of taxpayers started to discover the nuances of the rules and and figured out that there were some pretty harsh effects, especially with respect to related party services. Um, And so a major complaint was that the, the 59 and cafe rules didn't really take into account transactional flows that were in place prior to to TCJA's enactment whereby the net effect of, of inbound and outbound related party payments resulted in income actually coming into the US tax base. And so the idea that you would have an anti-base erosion rule that kicks in when you're not actually base eroding on the global scale uh, was was confounding to many, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so if we're, thinking about um, just why the BEAT exists in general, and we look at the legislative history of the rule, we have a a pronouncement in the Senate Budget Committee report that specifically calls out management fees, so service fees, between related parties and also related party interest as sources of outbound payments that the the Finance Committee found to be kind of just indicia of base erosion without more. So there's no... um, Sort of
1: really pr- presumptively problematic, if you will.
0: Right, presumptively problematic. They became de jure indicia in of base erosion once the rule passed, but there was no um, analysis or, or really regard given to whether or not those payments were arm's length. That's a that's an analysis that's reserved for 482 purposes. doesn't matter if your payment is arm's length or not. So we're in this world where as soon as you have an outbound payment of a certain type, you're in the 59 CAFE space, Um so that's the the landscape of, of what was going on leading up to the issuance of proposed regs. So if we fast forward to the issuance of the proposed regs in December of 2018, Treasury knew that these comments were out there floating around and that taxpayers had certain, certain positions about transaction flows that had been long established that shouldn't be necessarily considered to be base erosion payments. Um, And so in the proposed regs, the the Treasury Department did address some specific issues, notably the services cost method exception. Uh, We have the TLAC exception for foreign-parented banks, and it also um, specifically addressed netting.
1: So it's kind of like a a prospective notice and comment. They (laughs) already knew that these comments were out there in the ether and tried to address them when they proposed regs
0: in 2018. Trying to kind of... Um, offer some relief in the, in the case of SCM and, and TLAC, and then, um, clarifying that netting in fact is not a concept that has any room in 59 cafe, which is a gross basis tax. Um, so what they did not do is address these comments related to transaction flows and the myriad ways in which taxpayers remunerate related parties for myriad services or goods, what have you. Um, and so they instead of having any kind of specific rule for a common fact pattern, which of course would leave out other taxpayers that don't have that fact pattern, Treasury just said, you know what, we're going to rely on general tax law principles. You don't, we're not going to give a bunch of rules for what qualifies as a base erosion payment. We have this four prong test. Look at the test to clarify whether or not you fall into one of the four situations, look at general tax principles and they specifically noted agency reimbursement doctrine assignment of income principle and um, case law conduit principles in the, in the preamble to the proposed rags. And so again, taxpayers didn't feel like their comments had been addressed and now they did have the opportunity to comment. So between proposed and final, um, all kinds of letters were were sent in with, with specific examples.
1: And- so, did taxpayers actually prove their case? Prove the case that Treasury made in the out at the outset that <laughs> so Treasury says there are there are too many possible permutations for us to cover in the rules. The rules would become too complex and unadministrable. So, we're going to rely on background legal principles. And then taxpayers come in and say, "Well, wait, wait, wait! Look at all of these different factors." That you're running over and that sort of proves treasury's point at the outset
0: exactly i don't i don't think it's unreasonable having been on the side of trying to draft rules it's impossible to anticipate every single fact pattern Um, and the best you can do is offer clear rules clear guidance um, and hope that taxpayers are able to use that guidance and apply it to their specific fact pattern but it's impossible to anticipate all the situations um, that that people are actually experiencing, and so again, they they kind of broke the comments down into three groups of of typical fact patterns that that taxpayers raised. Uh, one was middleman or pass through payments. The second one has to do with uh, global revenue sharing, and then the third was the the issue that won't die: netting. <laughs> what to do when at the end of the day, you actually have income coming into the U.S. not going out, even though you have base erosion payments as defined in the statute. And so
1: all instances of, of money changing hands across foreign affiliates and and U.S. And their U.S. parent or U.S. affiliate, mm-hmm. and where there's arguably not something that you would call a payment that, that ought to be captured in computing your beat liability. Right. Because or- the...
0: because or 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 eligibility for the beat right right right. you're whether or not you get to that that threshold right the all important three percent or two percent threshold but um yeah they they are clear that a base erosion payment is defined in the statute and whether or not um and we'll get to the actual language that they put in the final regs but whether or not you actually have a payment that constitutes a base erosion payment is once again made under general tax law principles and they went a step further and actually put that language in the regulations so it's not just in the preamble um, which gives you know a little bit more credence to the to the idea a little bit more weight um, and so the specific language that they did adopt that is in the in the final regulations um, is under 59 1.59 cap a-3b2 romanet 1 and it Says that the amount paid or accrued and the identity of the payer and recipient of any amount paid or accrued is made under general U.S. federal income tax law. Period. <laughs> so there's your your codification of sorts of the rule of the case
1: law that yeah. is already itself law. <laughs> right. Yes,
0: but you know it's just out there. It's it's more than preamble language. It's actually in the regs. Um, and and they also went a step further. And clarified in the preamble that netting, and this is also in the actual text of the regulations, netting is it, there's no room for netting, despite what your contractual agreements might might call for, or what, you know, at the end of the day, the law calls for. You may net things for other purposes, but in terms of defining a base erosion payment, there is no netting. And the exception is mark mark-to-mark to trans mark to market transactions.
1: So you mentioned earlier that. Uh the BEAT is a gross basis tax. right? And that seems to me sort of fundamentally connected to them expressly disallowing netting as a, as a principle. Could you elaborate on that?
0: Yes, so it is a gross basis tax. It's modeled after AMT, which is also gross basis tax, and then you have reductions for preference items. And so that architecture is, is replicated in 59 Cafe. The only um, calculus you need to make is the quantum of your outbound deductible payment. And whether or not something else is coming in to offset that payment, even if they're related to the same general transaction, is irrelevant. Um, And that's just the way the statute is written. You know, there's not, even if Treasury wanted to, I don't think there's any room in the statute to allow for netting um, beyond what they have.
1: Meaning there was nothing in the statute that Congress sort of expressly... Delegated to Treasury, or implicitly delegated to Treasury, in in the in terms of netting payments against each other,
0: right? In the right. context, so one might take it, exception to that that conclusion when you think about the services cost method exception, which does kind of tease out your your cost basis, and then only treats the markup component as a um, base erosion payment and I understand the logic behind that but truly in a gross basis tax scenario that that uh, demarcation or delineation may not make that much sense we don't care about what the cost is we just care about the outbound payment so there's a little bit of a mismatch
1: so that it's, it's it's sort of an equivocation if you will that uh, on the one hand we're applying this on a gross basis and we refuse to do netting but in certain circumstances because of presumably industry pressure and and the like that they are willing to allow it in cases where presumably it's easy to measure as well
0: right and there is the actual statutory language that has this the scm exception which gives you know a lot of room for for the clarification that was in the proposed regs and got imported into the final regs and i'm i agree that it makes sense um, i wouldn't wouldn't take a position otherwise just from a a transfer pricing perspective and understanding what that oh, exception course. means. But if you want to be a purist of sorts in 59 Cafe context, it is a bit of an anomaly. It's, it's possible that,
1: <laughs> that Congress wasn't completely uh, uh, rigorous <gasps> in applying, it, in, in applying exception this, to <laughs> this gross basis, gross income tax.
0: There is the SCM exception in the statute. True. And we have to live with it. So... <laughs> There we go. Um, so that's the backdrop against which we are operating today, right? So we have the final regs. we have this reliance on general tax principles to perhaps I don't think I'm telling tales out of school here, perhaps get us out of having base erosion payments. So what are these general tax principles, and how might we apply them in some common transactions, right? Um. And so if we look back, we, we already talked about why this makes sense, right? So we don't want to have myriad rules. We don't want to pick winners and losers in and, and tax policy. Those are things that you kind of try to stay away from. And so Treasury, I think in a very um, reasonable fashion, said this, these are the rules that we can realistically and legally establish given our regulatory authority um, in the statute. And here's where we have to draw the line and we're gonna draw the line at these at these special circumstances and different fact patterns and, and basically put it back on taxpayers to figure it out. And so um, even though they, they mentioned a few in the proposed regs, those are a little bit different than the ones we're gonna talk about today. So we're gonna go through agency, the trust doctrine, reimbursement doctrine, and conduit principles that have arisen through case law. Um, and I'm just going to run through each of those four really quickly to give our dear listeners a little bit of an idea about what each of them is.
1: And the, the irony of, of all four of these is that these are traditionally doctrines that the IRS has invoked in trying to essentially ignore certain cash flows in order to capture more tax, tax revenue. Yes. revenue the, and so... The irony is that now taxpayers may be relying on those same principles to essentially disqualify certain cash transfers as payments under the B.
0: Right. Before taxpayers were kind of in a position of, of you know, wielding their shield against the, the IRS enforcing these their, principles. Their form shield. Their form you. shield. And now they have the sword <laughs> and they can uh, get out of, hopefully, get out of um, being characterized as having engaged in some base erosion payments. So. First, we have agency, and I'm gonna quote here from National Carbine Corp, um, which generally stands, this case stands for the proposition that when an agent collects or pays amounts on behalf of a principal, the tax consequences of the transaction flow to the principal, not the agent. Um, the next one we have is the reimbursement doctrine, and this I'm quoting from Glenn Denning, McLeish and Company v. Commissioner and under the reimbursement doctrine, simply a taxpayer is not entitled to a dux- deduction for a re- reimbursed expense, and the reimbursement is not included in gross income. Um, the trust doctrine says, and this is from 7UP, which is a, a famous, semi famous tax, tax case. I case. would say it's famous. I
1: would say it's famous.
0: I think so. Uh, the advancement of funds to an intermediary entity may be excluded from the intermediary's gross income if control and discretion over the use of the advanced funds is sufficiently limited and the intermediary does not derive profit from the activity. Finally, we have good old conduit. Uh, And I'm quoting here. Swiss Army knife doctrines. Yes, exactly. It can be used in a variety of situations. Um, And I'm quoting from Aiken Industries, the commissioner. The conduit doctrine generally stands for the proposition that the recipient of a payment does not realize income if it is a mere conduit for the funds and does not take beneficial ownership of the funds.
1: And so so the trust doctrine and the conduit doctrine are kissing kind cousins. Of, yeah, a little hard to
0: distinguish. Yes, they are kissing cousins. Um and I think if you look at the facts of 7 Up and kind of the context of why they were taking these amounts from um their subsidiary or actually bottlers um from around the country, 7 Up the headquarters took the took the amounts and then use them for a national advertising campaign. So I think of trust doctrine almost in the context of services as something that's happening at the headquarters for the benefit of the entire group. Now, I'm sure it can be more broad than that, but it kind of helps distinguish from simply a conduit situation, which I think of as almost in the reverse, kind of a payment going down and then going out. Um, But of course, it doesn't have to be in that direction. And
1: and theoretically, there's probably a timing distinction that that, uh, yes. that under the trust doctrine, if the you funds are sort it. of collected yes. and held for some period of time in the conduit, it's less, less <laughs> of a delay.
0: Exactly. Um, and we'll get into kind of distinguishing facts that might make one principle more attractive to rely upon than others, given sure. given the, the fact pattern and the situation that, that taxpayers find themselves in. So let's uh, return to those three situations that the final regs, Identified in the preamble, so we have middleman or pass-through payments, and then we have revenue-sharing agreements or, or scenarios, and then we have netting. So we're going to go through each of those and look at what um, of these, which of these general tax principles might be used to uh, mitigate the impact for fifty-nine K A purposes.
1: Right. So Lauren, you have some examples here that will help us understand these different general tax principles and and on the middleman pa- or pass-through payment, uh, we can imagine, and I think this is a pretty typical scenario, if you can imagine a US parent uh, that is funding uh, re- research mm-hmm. uh, outside of the US, uh, and it pays, let's say, $150 to its CFC, who in turn pays a third-party contract R&D provider, uh, That is the case where that that money, that $150, is going effectively from the US parent to a third-party contract R&D provider, but it goes through the CFC. So how is that treated for BEAT, and how can general tax principles influence how we treat that for BEAT purposes?
0: Right, so in 59 CAPE analysis, that would clearly be a base erosion payment, right? The US parent is making $150 deductible payment to it's CFC. and the analysis stops there. We don't go all the way down to the end of the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we look at what's actually happening, I think several of, of um, the general tax principles might apply depending on the facts. So you know of course we have agency. Uh, it depends on what the CFC is. Is it a dependent agent? Is it an independent agent? Um, and if it's if it qualifies as an agent, a dependent agent, and doesn't really have any kind of control over that money, and it's just paying on behalf of the parent. Then we would attribute that payment to the parent, to the principal, in that agency relationship.
1: This is not a. I mean, this is not a unique scenario, right? I mean, you can imagine a case where uh, the the parent actually wants to reflect the payment of to the R and D provider on the books of the CFC. Mm -hmm. This is not a, this is, it's not as if uh, this is an unnatural structure in any
0: way. No, no, not at all. I don't, I don't think so. And I think that was the point that many taxpayers were making that these are longstanding transaction flows that actually have a business purpose that are all of a sudden problematic from a 59 cafe perspective. But you know, in 2017, this would not have really raised any red flags or any years prior of course. Um, and so if we could also look at this through the lens of, of conduit and, and say, all right, maybe, you know, we can just look at the CFC as a pass through and all they're doing is acting as a vessel through which this $150 flows from the parent to this third party service provider. And I think here, some of the timing issues you mentioned earlier are really important. Um, if you're going to have a conduit payment what is the cfc actually doing with this 150 dollars are they turning around and paying it the same day they receive it from the parent or are they holding on to it for a little while um, conversely we could look at it from a um, reimbursement doctrine what if the cfc paid the 150 dollars to the third party itself first and then just gets paid back from the u.s parent um, it's a little bit of a different scenario they're using their own money um, so to speak but these are. It just depends on the facts. Depends it's, on. It's also
1: it. possible that the 150 is part of a whole bunch of different intercompany payments, <laughs> some of which, some <laughs> of which are inbound and some of which are outbound. That's
0: and, right. That's right.
1: And only the outbound ones are counting against you and under the B context.
0: Yes, when you are the U.S. entity.
1: And you can imagine a scenario where your your intercompany accounting becomes an issue, so that. You're, you can say, for beat purposes, no, we're going to treat this as a conduit; mm-hmm. it passes through the CFC, but but you if, still if, have to book it as right.
0: having left the U.S. and gone to the CFC,
1: and it hits the CFC's books, yeah. and so the government has on its side the way that you treated it for accounting. presumably for financial accounting
0: purposes. Yes, yes. So let's next turn to revenue sharing arrangements. Are you going to set this? Sure. Up for so.
1: Me? So this is another instance where, so another instance of 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 the kind of transaction that would be very unsurprising to see in nature. (laughs) So suppose that you have some customers, some of whom are inside the U.S., some of whom are outside the U.S., um, and they're receiving services from both the U.S. company and from its foreign affiliate. And instead of paying each of those different companies, the customers make a single payment to the U.S. company, who in turn takes the 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 sort of allocated portion of the revenue and passes it then along to the CFC. All it's doing is paying the CFC the share of its revenue that it earned. And presumably, it's probably the arm's length share of the revenue that it earned. Uh, but how is that payment treated under under beat?
0: Under beat, that is a base erosion payment. Um, and so you'd have to look at really what's happening here. And the U.S. is not holding on to um, this money for itself, it's just on paying the CFC its portion for, for provision of services. So uh, once again, we could look at conduit and say, all right, well, there's no beneficial ownership, they're just, it's a flow through payment, um, that's it. And so we're not gonna treat it as a base version payment for 59 cap A purposes. So I do think it's interesting that Treasury was, took care to note in the preamble to the final regs that all these comments received with respect to revenue sharing agreements particular arrangements, particularly profit splits, writ large, uh, profit split is a method. It's a transfer pricing method. And, and you know, taxpayers have to be careful not to conflate a method with evidence of a payment not being a base erosion payment. It's not dispositive. So just because you're engaged in a profit split doesn't mean necessarily you don't have a base erosion payment. You're gonna have to do the, do the work and do the analysis to get there.
1: So we're gonna we're, we're gonna allow you to do a profit split but we're not going to allow you to opt your way out of particular beat payments by virtue of your 482 method
0: right right just because you're engaged in a profit split that alone is not sufficient
1: and I think the last one we have is this sort of uh, this the, the idea of what netting might look like so assume you have and th- again this is another thing that is not exceptional in nature so suppose that you have a uh the U.S. company funding a portion of the marketing expense of a CFC. So uh, so if you imagine the U.S. company spending, sending $150 to its CFC, the CFC then in turn is spending that on third-party media. But the CFC is also paying a royalty back to the U.S., suppose $200. So you have this $50 effectively net U.S. income, but that 150 marketing $150 marketing fee how is that treated for beat purposes and how would you argue for for netting in this context
0: right so we have um as you said a net $50 inflow into the US we have 150 going out and we also have a $10 markup that remained at the CFC level um so you know i think we could look at this two ways we have an outbound $150 payment, maybe we could use services cost method to analyze that amount and say, you know what, the 140 is really just cost of the CFC. Look, they pay this third party. The markup is $10, and that's what your base erosion payment is. Um, that's separate and apart from general tax principles. Um, but I think you would get to the same answer. You would. You could argue that the CFC was only holding... The 140 as a conduit. You know, the U.S. was using the CFC to pay that on through, and they keep a $10 payment. Um, And so you have a a $10 base erosion payment. You could also argue that, you know, you could change your payment flow and just have CFC pay a $50 royalty and retain that 150 at the CFC level um, instead of turning around and paying it right back up, essentially, is what's happening but then I think you might run into some transfer pricing issues. Perhaps you know—is that fifty dollars an arm's length amount for the royalty? And if it's not, was one hundred and fifty? <laughs> you right, know, like right. you have you have a disconnect. Either it was arm's length before and it's not now, or it wasn't before and it is now. now. It is. So you're going to have to get um, some some a narrative together, if you will, about why that fifty now makes sense from an arm's length standpoint.
1: But it it also implies a kind of perverse incentive for taxpayers. I mean, in in this circumstance that we described, you you have presumably the reason why you have a $200 royalty coming back into the U.S. is because the the valuable IP that both the parties are investing in is owned here in the U.S. This seems to suggest that it would be better if you owned this outside of the U.S.
0: (laughs) Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true that TCJA really did... Uh, have a stated intention of moving value, having taxpayers move valuable IP back to the U.S., having jobs, uh, sophisticated functions be located in the U.S. And so, yeah, query whether or not that, that uh, policy aim is being satisfied where you have a perverse incentive to kind of net your payments yourself and undervalue, or not undervalue, but at least have IP that That is only going to support a fifty-dollar royalty as opposed to a two hundred-dollar royalty. Right. Um, And
1: let's talk uh, last about uh, netting of income in in the in the cost sharing context. Mm -hmm. So, if you assume that uh, you have uh, you have some some a cost sharing arrangement, right? So, typical cost sharing arrangement. And uh, suppose you have the the U.S. company and and one foreign CFC. both of whom are in, incurring intangible intangible development costs or IDCs as the as the transfer pricing Yes, <laughs> in, in the parlance of our times. Yes, um, and uh, so suppose the U.S. is incurring two hundred eighty, and and the 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 CFC is incurring one hundred and forty. Uh, then you have the 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 resulting revenues from those, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, how do you treat? the fact that some of those revenues might be coming into the CFC and then passed back to the U.S. company in that circumstance.
0: So here's the good news of today. Uh, Netting is permitted in a cost sharing arrangement context. So um, we can go back to the regs, the final beat regs which say generally netting is not allowed but for instances where it is allowed in other provisions of the code or regulations so there's an example in the 482 regulations 482-7 highlighting you kind of net your pcts your your platform contribution transaction payments and your idcs to get to whatever that that final amount is and you pay it in or out Um, and in the example that we are going through we're assuming that the net is an income flow into the US. Into the US. Um, and so in that instance, even though there are some outbound payments to the um, foreign cost sharing participant, we are not going to treat those as, as base erosion payments.
1: So the stakes are even higher to do a cost sharing. Not only does it eliminate <laughs> your the uncertainty about the correct arms length pricing, but it also permits you to net in a way that might be favorable for BEAT purposes.
0: It does. But, you know, cost sharing arrangements are are not easy things to plan into. So I'm not sure, even though they do offer significant relief, I'm not sure that they're a planning tool um, so much as a beneficial result if you happen to already be in one. So that brings us to the end of the second episode of Tax Break. We hope you found the discussion interesting and we invite you to tune in to our next episode where we will return to our discussion of the December 2019 final beat regulations. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a topic you would like for us to address, please email us at podcasts at We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, please subscribe and listen.